Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this week is going to be a little bit different to the usual format. There's a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, we're taking a break from British true crime this week and we're focusing instead on cases in North America. Secondly, I'm not on my own this week. I've got a guest to welcome and this time we're journeying into the paranormal with my very special guest, Miranda Young. Welcome, Miranda. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure having you on. Now, we've had our, I guess, mutual friend now, we would say, with Chris Sumner. Chris came on the show whenever this is going to wear, I'm not sure, but she came on a few, I'm going to say months ago at this point, maybe a few weeks ago, and we discussed three cases on there, and, and she speaks highly of yourself. So I reached out to Miranda. We spoke via email back and forth, and here we are. So how how do you know Christy in, in the first instance before we get into sort of your history? Yeah, so uh, so Dr. Sumner and I, we actually became friends through the paranormal. Um, we both have our own uh, our own team, per se. I'm a solo investigator, and she has her team, Soul Sisters Paranormal. And so we actually met up. Um, she had been watching my show, Ghost Biker Explorations, and I had actually mutually been following hers. And so um, she reached out to me to congratulate me on my first season and wish me well on my second season. And, um, you know, we we decided to plan an investigation. So we ended up traveling to uh, to North Carolina and investigating and family had a very similar style. And so so we've any opportunity that we can to collaborate over the past three years, we would get together and work on different cases and investigations and then actually ended up becoming uh, business partners and creating uh, History Highways and Haunts and opening a historic uh, location and true crime museum in Scott County, Tennessee. How's that going? Because I remember Krista mentioned that I think she recorded the episode from the like the dungeon or the office area. Of, is it an old prison? It is. It is. It is an old jail. It was open from 1904 until 2005, and it was in my hometown of Huntsville, Tennessee. And so um, we've been open since September 4th. So whenever this airs, uh, you know, so we've been open, um, uh, you know, a little over four months now. And it's it's been going really well. We have general day tours during the day with a lot. I'm talking a ton of true crime history in the uh, in the jail on all three levels of it, as well as 
different artifacts and relics inside there. And then also um, in the evenings, we do after dark tours, which tailors to flashlight tours, public ghost hunts and uh, private paranormal investigations. Cool. What sort of memorabilia do you have then? Is it from the local area or is it just from North America in general? It's typically from the area, um, so I, I don't I don't know if you guys can tell, but I'm I'm from the south, and so uh, so here in Tennessee, uh, Huntsville, Tennessee, is a very small rural town in the mountains of uh, East Tennessee, and so uh, it's known as the Appalachian Mountains, and so most of the history that's inside of there uh, ranges from so so essentially the jail was open for about 120 years. And so the history ranges from specifically that area, but we do have, uh, you know, Christy has a law enforcement background and um, I'm very much um, appreciative of what our, our law enforcement does. So we also have a law enforcement appreciation section and that encompasses not just Tennessee or the Scott County area, but also the entire United States. So it has a little bit of everything, but it's primarily centered right there in Scott County, Tennessee. Cool. And what's your background then? My background is actually in photography and marketing and um, uh, graphic design. And so uh, I worked for 21 years as a uh, marketing director for a photography company here in Tennessee. And so um, it actually really works out well with Christy's law enforcement background and her business sense. And then with my marketing and design background, we're able to, to really come together and uh, create a, a really interesting and cool company um, because we've, we've pretty much done it all ourselves uh, there at the museum, uh, just minus the um, the donations and some of the uh, artifacts that they've donated. There's a whole lot of, of newspaper stories that we've got up, as well as, like I said, some different artifacts, um, you know, some moonshine, some uh, police artifacts from the area. It's, it's really growing into to quite the robust museum. Nice. I could definitely tell based on your videos, you have sort of an interest and a background in videography, photography, because I really enjoyed, I was watching one earlier, actually, I really enjoyed the, it's almost like cinematic, your style. So you have kind of an introduction and there's, you know, there's the dramatic music and the establishing shots while you're doing the narr- um, the monologue over the top, the narration, should I say. It's a really interesting style. The one I was watching was when you went to one of the cases we covered when Chris came on, which was the Mar Barker house. Was it Chris that you did that one with? Was she the photographer? It was. She she did follow me uh, with, with the camera. So essentially, I started out investigating with a team, but I am a true solo investigator. And so I am either at these locations by myself or I have a videographer that comes with me. And so Christy stepped in during this past season and helped me film. I do all of the um, editing myself for my videos. And I really wanted to give the the um, appeal to the audience of really putting them into the situation of the investigation. The investigation is is typically three parts. I always start with telling as much history as as I can about the location. And then in also kind of giving, since I am a biker and I take my motorcycle to the locations, I always, you know, kind of talk a little bit about the travel and maybe some type of interesting history about the specific area that I've traveled to. And then I show the investigation 
and really kind of wrap it up with uh, any type of evidence. Fortunately, when we've gone, we've we've been able to capture quite a bit at these locations, but I try to pick my locations based on the story. And even if we don't capture any type of activity, it's always an interesting enough story that, you know, the the history buffs will enjoy it. And I try to keep the episodes too to anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes to try to keep them short to keep keep everyone's attention. So I've kind of tried to develop my own little style with it. And um, I, I really appreciate your your kind words and compliments about um, uh, about how the ep- episodes are set up. Oh, it's, it's deserved praise, in my opinion. I think, especially with regards to the length, that's something I really appreciate because I'm similar with, with my regular episodes. I, I call it bite size, anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes, roughly, based on personal preference which it sounds like what you've done as well i think it's great when people create content aimed at what their own preferences are because if you if you're making content that you wouldn't watch or listen to yourself then you're sort of in it for the for the wrong reasons i think absolutely and you know with my marketing background before i really started putting the episodes together i really sat down put a lot of thought into the look and the feel and the branding that I wanted, and then also how I wanted to present the episodes. And I found that the average person's attention span is around 20 minutes. And nobody likes to pull up a video on a topic that they're really interested in and see that it's this very long video when they don't have a lot of time. And so ideally, when I set that up, I I wanted something to where if somebody was taking a break at work, they could sit down and watch. Or if they're like me and they're always on the go with not a lot of time, I, I really wanted something to where if I'm sitting down to to eat a bite of dinner or something, I could sit down and watch it knowing that I wasn't going to be able to just watch part of it and put it away. You know, I think a lot of the time that there can be a lot of fluff put in there um, into some. And really the way I wanted to structure it was I wanted people to come in and clearly know the story and then also be able to see what I'm doing. And and it's kind of, it's, it's a challenge to take, you know, when you have a 12 hour investigation to t- really try to call that down into 20 minutes and still tell a good story. So I really tried to take a lot of time just to, to, do that with the stories because I know a lot of people don't have a lot of time to waste. And then I would also follow these up um, because essentially my episodes drop during the month of October, every Tuesday night. And so I would have a, um, a complimentary release on Thursday nights that really goes in. It's a live stream that goes in and talks about the tools that I used as well as more information on the location. I didn't really want to take that information and bog down the episode, but it really gave me an opportunity to sit there talk to the people who have watched the show and really give a lot more details and really interact with them. And and that was something that worked out really well and allowed me to not have to really clutter up the episode in, in talking to people who may not necessarily be paranormal enthusiasts. Yeah. I definitely think with regards to episode length for YouTube, it seems to be between 20 and 30, 40 minutes, like you say. Have you ever considered rather than trying to condense one down into such a short time, splitting one over a couple of episodes or making a series of one investigation if there was a lot of activity? 
I have done that. And actually, I did that in season one. Um, There was a location. I typically investigate a lot of the more local legends and um, a lot of the places that people may not have heard of. And so one particular location known as the house on Sunset Hill was a residential case. And it ended up actually being a continued episode. Um, So it did span two episodes. And then it actually carried into season two with um, the season two finale. I was able to document this case from the start of of the actual activity all the way until um, I, I worked with a demonologist who helped helped get resolution to the case. And so we covered that over the first two episodes. And so I'm actually thinking because there was so much in this particular location going back and actually turning that into a documentary. Wow. A demonologist involved as well. That sounds scary. <laughs> yeah, you know what was interesting about it is that, that it was a location that um it actually started as an investigation of a local legend from um you know, I, I get a lot of my stories from a lot of the books that come out sp- with stories specific to the area and so I ended up um investigating that but then it ended up turning into an actual residential case and uh it it was really interesting how how it all came about, um, you know, through this because you know I'm always telling folks, um, being being a biker and and uh, someone that really enjoys travel, I'm always telling people, you know, you don't have to go to the really big locations. You know, if if you take a map, close your eyes and touch anywhere on that map, I guarantee you'll find somewhere that that has a story that uh, people will, you know, will um, it is really worth looking into sharing and investigating to see if there's activity with it. Yeah, I think people as well like to learn about things that aren't mainstream. It's quite similar with regards to murder cases that I cover, for example. Sometimes if I can't think of a case, I'll just pick a random town or city and and type the word murder in in a search engine and it'll come up with something. I'm sure it's the same with local legend stories. But people... For example, if you covered a, a really popular case, a paranormal case like Lizzie Borden or like Mar Barker, and there's been hundreds of people covering those cases with lots of exposure, you're going to be in my my theory is you'll be a lot further down the search engine page wise. Whereas if you if you cover something that not many people have heard of, on the off chance that someone searches for that, if you're the only person that's covered that case, you're going to be top on the list. That's how I think of it. I don't know what your thoughts are on, on that. No, that's that's actually brilliant thinking because it, it's it's the same way with the paranormal, you know. And when when I talk about just finding that spot on the map, I can't tell you how many cool stories I've found while I've just been out riding back roads and I see a little town sign. And so I'm like, oh, I need to go back and look that up. And I've actually found a couple episodes that I released um, in in season three. One of them was a 1944 troop train accident, which ended up being um, one of the worst troop train accidents and train derailments of all time here in the area. And so, um, you know, just just by seeing a little eight foot by eight foot sign. And so I've not found very much information on that. It can make researching a little bit more of a challenge. But what I am finding is, you know, these small towns that, you know, it's a very, a lot of these are popular stories in those small towns. And so people are, are interested to share that locally. 
And then there's there's a sense of pride whenever you're putting that out there because you're highlighting this little small area that other people may not have heard of. And so you're right. It does end up pushing you up toward the top on on that search engine, especially if it's not been covered. Absolutely. The other thing which is worth noting as well, and I can speak to this from my TikTok page because I do similar local thing, but obviously mine's murder, similar to what you're doing. What people find is that once you've told a story about a really unknown place or a lesser known place, let's say, that is a true local legend story, people from other small areas like to say, oh, but we've got this story. This one's even, and people reach out from other places. Does that happen with you as well? It does. It does. And most of my stories that I get, I start off, you know, reading some of the different local legend books. Like I might find something like on um, Haunted Chattanooga or Haunted Birmingham. There's a lot of those little books around. In fact, um, the one that um, started the big case of the house on Sunset Hill, um, it was a a story about a train wreck and uh, a phantom monk uh, from the book 13 Ghosts and Jeffrey. And so, um, so yeah, I'll, I'll pick from these different books and that's inevitably, that's always how it happens. Um, someone will say, well, if you've heard of that, have you heard of this? And so then that starts a whole other trip to a whole other town. And then just along the way, as you're going to that town, you find all kinds of stories. Um, so I'm constantly having people email me and mes- message me telling me about stories that that happened in their area. And they're fascinating, especially when you really start to talk to people who are either connected to the stories or have had some type of experience around the location itself. It is fascinating. I think it's it's almost like becoming part of a an underground cult in a way because you've got mm-hmm. all these people from towns and cities that most people, if you look at the map, won't have heard of. But it's, absolutely, word of mouth is a powerful thing. What's the furthest? distance you've traveled or what state is furthest from home that you've been to actually conduct an investigation on the back of a request let's say uh probably so i've traveled out out of the 50 states i've traveled to all of them but six now i've not covered all of them in the stories probably the furthest that i've traveled um that i've documented would be probably uh, i would have to say probably either massachusetts Massachusetts or Florida, even though I've been and investigated out in Colorado, uh, I wasn't on the motorcycle on that. And uh, that was more of, um, those were flying trips, I guess. Okay. You'll have to forgive me because we're not too familiar with the location of some of the, we call them lesser known states. That's probably an insult, but you know that we, (laughs) New York, California, we know where these places are, but places like Tennessee, Colorado, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone here who could point them out on a map. So I'm just looking at a map in front of me now. So Tennessee here, sort of, what region do you call it? Would you class that as east or is that? Yes. So, so Tennessee, Tennessee is divided. Tennessee is divided into three regions, um, east, middle and west Tennessee and east Tennessee is the mountainous region. And so, uh, so I myself am located in East Tennessee and uh, deep in the mountains here. So um, it's it's a lot of kind of your stereotypical, you know, mountain hillbilly sort of thing. <laughs> um, but in uh, so, Tennessee is actually classified as here in in the southern states. 
We're okay. not we're not the deep south, but we're we're pretty close. Yeah. So I'm looking here. Is it the Great Smoky Mountains? Is that the? Yes, sir. That's the mountain area. Okay. Yes, the the Great Smoky Mountains and the Appalachian Mountains. Right. The the Smoky Mountains are part of the Appalachians. Okay. So you've got deep south, but that's not you. You sort of, I would call that mid eastern, but I know that's I know there's Midwest, isn't there? But mid eastern, not a there thing is. over there. Yeah, so so essentially here, when you get down um, Kentucky on down, um, so Kentucky store north, then those are considered your southern states all the way down to Florida there. And I think it probably, mm, I would say your, your Midwestern Plains states are going to be um, anywhere from like Arkansas on over. Okay. Because do you ever play that game where you have to name all fifty states in a minute? I I like to think I would do okay, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to put you on the spot now. Don't worry. <laughs> I was just wondering if you'd ever done it because I think we would struggle over here personally. <laughs> well, and that's the that's the fascinating thing too about all of this are are just looking at the different regions, you know, and and the different hauntings in the different regions, the things that we experience here in the South. The, the hauntings are a little bit different than what they experience up in the New England states or the northern states. Um, out west, I was, I was just out west at a um, convention in New Mexico. And, you know, of course, that's our western states. And um, all the stories are different. So when you start looking at the different mountain ranges and the different um, regions and geological features and stuff, it's, you know, it's it's very different um, when you start hearing some of the, the stories. And I think some of that also comes from the old history. Here in the South, we're very traditional and, you know, sometimes looked at as a little more behind than some of the other areas. But I think that also leads to the charm and then also why we experience the hauntings and stuff a little bit different than, than they do in some of the other regions. Yeah. How many episodes do you do in each of your seasons? So typically it it runs by the month of October. So if there are four Tuesdays or five Tuesdays in October, then typically that's how many episodes I'll have each season. Usually it ranges around five to six episodes. Okay. This season with opening the jail was a little bit different because we, um, we, ha- we had just opened in September. And so... October was our very busy month. So I'm actually uh, still have the season finale that I've got to release here. Um, and it will hopefully come out either end of January, middle of February, because I'm just having to work the production of that in with everything else. But um, typically there are um, five to six episodes and uh, they release every Tuesday night with the supplementary episode on Thursdays with the live stream. And, We've covered in the this past season, um, I covered locations in um, Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina in this past season. And uh, and then the stories that I'm going to share today, um, one of them comes here from Tennessee, another one comes from Indiana, and then the other one comes from um, Louisiana, New Orleans, to be specific. Cool. Well, that's a good little link. Let's move on to uh, the stories you're going to tell. So you've got three stories for us today. Yes. I've not heard any of these, 
by the way, dear listener. I've not heard any. I don't know what they're about. I've just heard the locations of them, which I've already forgotten. So, <laughs> so I'll leave it to you, Miranda, whichever one you want to start with, and we can uh, have a bit of a chat about that case first, and then we can move on to the rest. Sure, sure. So so essentially, the one I'm going to start with is the one from here in Tennessee. And I know one of the common questions when people are talking to myself or other paranormal investigators are, you know, did you grow up in a haunted house or did you, you know, what type of experiences did you have as a child? And so my response on that is usually, you know, I I was just always fascinated with it. Um, The stories of these um, locations and the paranormal local legends, that's something that's always fascinated me. And so while I didn't grow up in a haunted house, I did go to a haunted school. And um, the school was Robbins Elementary School. And so um, here in the mountains of East Tennessee, we typically, uh, back in the early 1900s, a lot of the buildings that were there had multi-purposes. And so um, my, my elementary school It actually also functioned as uh, an auditorium or a movie theater back in the 1920s. And so on March 5th in 1927, which was a Saturday night, they were showing a a movie down there at Robbins School. And um, don't know exactly what the movie was, but it was a comedy. And so two particular deputies had shown up that night at the movies, uh, Deputy West and Deputy Ben Fowler. And Deputy Ben Fowler, he was known to be a very big man. He was um, very much um, against moonshining, although he did, he was against it, but he did like to drink. And so um, he was actually traveling to the theater that night. Um, The story goes that he was going to actually serve a warrant that night. And so he was wearing a bulletproof vest and he was carrying two 44 caliber pistols on his side when he went to that movie. And um, apparently he, that was not uncommon for him to uh, wear a bulletproof vest because he said that, you know, it saved him quite a bit of time. Uh, I mean, it saved him several times. And so um, sitting in front of him was Dr. Faust and he was the uh, area physician for the town of Oneida and the town of, of um, Robbins. And so he was seated in, seated in front of him with his wife and his adult son. And so there were also a lot of children that were sitting here at this, at this particular movie. And so Deputy West and Deputy Fowler, they didn't sit together, but they were still sitting kind of nearby. And apparently it was, a, it was a full house that night. Well, Deputy Fowler, as I said, you know, he was against moonshining, but he also liked to drink himself. And so on that particular night, witnesses say that he was actually pretty drunk himself. Not sure how drunk, but they said he was drunk enough to um, not really care what he said and how he acted. And so as the movie went on that night, a lot of the kids who were in the theater, they were laughing and they were laughing and kind of acting up a little bit. Well, Deputy Fowler being drunk, he became enraged. He went down to where the children were and asked them to essentially just told them, you know, would you shut up? If you don't be quiet, I'm going to arrest you. And so a lot of the people in the theater thought that it was really funny that this big deputy and again, a fairly large deputy, was threatening these children. And so that caused the crowd to start to laugh, which made, you know, the deputy even madder. Dr. Faust, who was there in the audience, he also began to laugh. And 
that caused the deputy to turn around and, you know, tell him, if, if you're not quiet, I'll arrest you too. And so it said that he replied and said, you know, Ben, you wouldn't do that. And again, that made him even matter. So he mm-hmm. ended up hitting um, the doctor in the head with one of his pistols. So he pistol whipped him and shot him five times in the face at point blank range in front of all the kids and all the people in the audience. The doctor ended up dying instantly and um, his son pulled out his own pistol and returned fire at the deputy, Deputy Fowler. This is the doctor's son. Yes, the doctor's right. son. He uh, he ended up pulling out his own, pi- own pistol and returned fire at Deputy Fowler. Um, he struck him five times, but only f- but four of the bullets ended up getting lodged in the deputy's bulletproof vest, and the fifth bullet struck him in the arm. So during this gunfight, they're you know inside of the schoolhouse at this movie where there were a lot of children present. The other deputy. Deputy West, who had been sitting just down from the doctor and Deputy Fowler, he ended up being shot. The bullet struck him on his lower right side in his intestines, and also another bystander had been shot as well. The uh, latter bystander, he, he would recover, but Deputy West, he ended up passing away later on that evening. There's there's some rumors uh, as to um, kind of how it all ended, but essentially the way the story goes, um, Deputy Fowler, you know, again, being drunk and with all the melee of the shooting and everything, um, he didn't run out of the auditorium, but rather kind of stayed there and essentially held the people hostage. He was, you know, brandishing his guns and, and threatening the people who were in there and apparently jumped on to the doc, uh, Dr. Faust's wife for crying over her deceased husband. So he was jumping onto her. During this time, he ended up sobering up and realized what he had done. Um, so Mountain Justice is is pretty swift. And so they ended up, he, he surrendered himself. Um, this was on Saturday by Monday, which was two days after the shooting. Uh, he was taken before a grand jury, and they they convened and and uh, decided to indict him. His trial was three days later, and after after a week, he was actually sent to Nashville, which now is two and a half hours away. Uh, at that point in time, it would have would have been much longer, but. They sent him to Nashville, and he was actually executed in the electric chair. From the notes that I found, he was actually the 29th person in Tennessee to um, be executed by electric chair. So a couple interesting things about that. So my librarian was the one that shared this story with us. So again, I attended school there at Robbins Elementary School, which was um, when it, where the deputies were shot and uh, as well as the doctor. And so my librarian was amazing. And that's really where I got my love for the paranormal because she made sure that every kid that passed through those halls while she was the librarian there knew this story. And so she would share that story every Halloween and talk about some of the different things that people could hear. And I remember um, my kindergarten and first grade class was on the level just below the area where the doctor was shot up on the second floor. And so we would always think that we heard phantom gunshots, 
you it was said that you could hear a lot of phantom laughter as well as you know somebody screaming or the sound of a phantom uh, comedy show playing so it was always said and a lot of people always reported different things that they had captured there the school has since been torn down and um a new one has been built in its place. And so I hate that because I would have loved to have gone back and investigated. But that's really where I got my love for um, for the paranormal, for storytelling, and for really looking into those true crime stories and uh, local legends. Oh, such a shame that they've torn it down. Yes. What a video that would have been, going through all your old classrooms and this is where we had lunch and... You could have, that could have been a whole aspect of the video before you even got to the. Absolutely, and and that's a story I, I often share whenever I'm speaking to different different audiences and talking about how I got into the paranormal. Because after that, I just wanted to get a hold of any book that was in the library that talked about different hauntings and and different you know folklore and stories from the area. And I can remember when they tore that building down. Uh, my parents were teachers, and so a lot of people got stuff from. The, the buildings when they were tearing them down. And we've got some old school desks, the old wooden ones with the um, crates under the bottom and the desks attached. And some of those desks that we have actually came from that room. And I remember going in there and you could still see the bullet holes in the wall from where the shootings had occurred that night. So was that whole second floor shut off, I assume, when the school was actually operating? It was. Um, that particular section of it was closed off. The My kindergarten class was on the second floor, but it was back in behind that section of rooms. It was like a whole front section of the building that they ended up uh, closing off. I don't know exactly the year that they closed that area off. Um, I know the shooting happened in uh, 1927, but um, I'm pretty sure it wasn't at that point when they closed it off. But it was definitely, I was there in uh, 19, uh, the early 1980s. And so it was uh, definitely shut off at that time. Was it like barricaded or did you ever try and sneak up and? Oh, we always tried to sneak up. <laughs> <laughs> they had the doors chain locked. And so um, it was it was not uncommon for me to be after there after hours with my parents being teachers. And so several of us other kids who were teachers kids we would go up the stairs and you know you would dare the other kid to go up after dark and stand there and and you know see what they would uh what they could hear or you would take different sort of trigger items you know like a you know comedy movie or that sort of thing to see if something would would trigger that and uh you know to to me that's just fascinating and it actually even parallels even further today because that deputy Deputy West, who was killed during the shooting, he was actually one of our officers here in Scott County that we honor there at the jail where Dr. Sumner and I co-own. He's one of the deputies that we honor because uh, we've had 14 deputies killed in the line of duty. And so he's one of those. And then on the flip side, Deputy Fowler, who did the shooting He's on there as one of the people who did serve some time in that jailhouse um, before he was transferred to uh, to Nashville after that week after the shooting. Wow. I think I would have never gone to school again if my librarian told me that story. 
<laughs> you know, it's 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 fascinating because we'll talk to um, other other kids, you know, that have been there. And I mean, she was librarian there for um, for several decades, I believe. And so she most people knew that story. And um, like I said, I think that I think that that probably got quite a few other people interested in in history and the paranormal as well. Was there anything else on the back of that story? Well, I suppose if they closed it off, they couldn't have been. But as far as hauntings and stuff, did you actually hear anything or was there anything? You know, sometimes you get events that happen after the fact and people say, oh, like on an anniversary of the event, for example. Uh, Well, you know, I mean, because like I said, they tore it down pretty quick after I was out of there. I think they tore that part down by like my fifth grade year, I believe, and uh, was putting the the new uh, school there. I believe that um, just because the building's gone, I think that things can still happen. It used to always be rumored that the school was haunted, even though, you know, like I said, they had torn that part of the building down. Um, I do believe that uh, people did often talk about hearing, you know, phantom gunshots or hearing phantom laughter. Wow. Apparently, Dr. Faust had a very distinguishable laugh. And so um, that's one of the things that they would talk about here, that people would talk about hearing throughout the years. Personally, myself, you know, as a young kid, you like to think that that um, you're, you've experienced that. But I can't say that, that I've personally experienced anything from it. I'm just trying to, I'm picturing my junior school, kindergarten. <laughs> And I'm thinking if, if I heard a bunch of laughter from upstairs, I would be straight out of there. Oh, <laughs> God. Because that's quite young, isn't it? Kindergarten. That's... It is. It is. I can I can remember her sharing that story with, uh, with us um, at least kindergarten through third grade. Wow. So what ages is that? Is that like... We, we have different, we have like years, we have year one, year two here, we don't have grades, you see. Okay, that would be, so we start school at age five, and so that would be from about about five to age nine. Okay. I remember yeah. her telling that. Yeah, because you guys have a middle school as well, right? We do. Um, yeah, that whole building there, it housed the lower elementary school, which would have been K through third grade. I believe. And then um, you get into middle school at fourth through sixth, and then junior high is seventh through eighth, and then high school is nine through 12. Wow. So that sounds like a lot of different school. Is it all within the same? Do you all, because I'm trying to compare it to how we are here. So we have junior school, which is, I think we start at four, Mm -hmm. which would be year one. I believe, or maybe that's preschool, but we start at four, junior school ends at 11 years okay. old, I believe, and then high school is from 11 to 16. Okay. And then after that, because I think high school over there ends at 18, right? It does, yes. So between Typically, six, yeah. depending on when your birthday falls. Yeah. So here, after 16, after high school, you would go, if you wanted to apply for further education, we would apply to college. And that would be the last two years of American high school, we class as college here. And then from 18 plus, I think the conversion is you would call it college, we would call it university. So it's just a little bit different. I'm just trying to get my head around the age ranges, yeah. But mm-hmm. I would still certainly have been uh, extremely scared. Even if I was there at 32, which I am now, I would still be 
extre- extremely scared if I heard some laughing from upstairs. That's typically how I take my paranormal investigations and such. You know, I'm very history driven and very storytelling driven. And so that's what I tend to go for. You know, you have some people that go for the darker hauntings or um, the demonologist side of things, poltergeist. You've got different people in the paranormal that will kind of specialize. Some some are, are more metaphysical with the mediums and, and psychics and that sort of thing. For me, I really like to take the time to get the stories, get the history, spend double the time doing the research, and then... I spend double the time doing the research that I actually do with the investigations. So, um, and then of course going through and analyzing the evidence and that sort of thing, and then putting the videos together. So it's, it's really, to me, it may, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a true story. It can be more of a legend, but I want to research and see if there's something that, you know, we can, pull out of that through the paranormal research but the history ones are my favorite because finding those stories such as that with um, you know deputy faust in um, fowler and going in and seeing if you can actually capture so it, it is very unfortunate that that the building is not not there to be able to investigate i suppose you could probably go and investigate the school grounds and mm. see but that's what I really like is being able to take that history and see if we can get any type of um, corresponding responses or stories from our paranormal research to see if, if we can line anything up. Do you get scared when you're actually on the investigations? Because when I was watching earlier and you were saying that you felt cold chills and stuff, and I think you were upstairs and the, is it called a REM pod that was downstairs? Yes. That was going off and, there was sort of communication back and forth between the actual red REM pod going off and you guys would disappear and it would fly <laughs> go off again. Are you not scared in the mud? I would absolutely soil myself. <laughs> not, not usually. I mean, I get startled. I don't. I haven't really typically gotten scared at some of these. You know, I'm more. I'm more afraid of the living, you know, than I am, than I have of what we're experiencing there in these locations. But I've definitely been startled and I've definitely been surprised, you know, whenever you're there and and you capture a disembodied voice or something that's, you know, if I'm the only woman in there or in there with just another female and we capture a male's voice that's responding intelligently or if there's a knock or a clang or if something's thrown over it it can definitely get startling, but to me, it, it ends up being more of an adrenaline rush because it's like, okay, you know, we're on to something and, and I want to see what, what we're able to capture, you know, from, fr- from this, you know, so mm. I look at it like I have a, a pretty calm demeanor. And so I try to stay that way and stay grounded when I'm going in because I find that the more emotional and the more scared you get that can either ramp up the activity or sometimes cause things to go kind of in a different direction. And so, so I try to stay calm. So have you never been in a situation where you've abandoned the investigation, whether you felt it's been an excessively negative energy or you feel unsafe from, not from outside sources, if you think someone's coming onto the investigation physically in our world, but have you ever felt that it's just not been the right vibe during an investigation and called it off? No, I've I've stepped outside. I've I've stopped in the moment, and I have stepped outside to um, maybe try to essentially diffuse or change the energy. 
I've never actually walked away. There's been a few times that after listening to some of the evidence I've captured, I've thought to myself, okay, I I don't know if I want to go back there um, just because um, Revenant Acres was one of those. And some of the responses and the activity was very negative toward me. And, and I knew going in that the entity that was in there did not like females and that they could tend to be more aggressive toward them. Um, I did get some some pretty aggressive responses on my SB7 spirit box. And afterwards, in looking at it and putting all the pieces together, I really didn't know if I wanted to go back and put my put myself in that situation because I like a good dark story, you know, and one of the other ones that I'm going to talk about, well, actually the next two are, are, are pretty dark stories. And so I like those. But I tend to do go in with a different approach. I don't really go in seeking out demonic entities or anything like that. That's not to say you don't know what you're going to encounter when you go. And you may encounter something a little bit darker and a little bit more negative. But I think you just have to be grounded and, and really go in with... Um, kind of a plan on things. And so, and that's why sometimes I I will stop if things get a little too much and kind of go out and try to defuse the situation. Huh. So before we get onto the second story, just a random question that's popped up talking about the darker side of, of what you do. Mm -hmm. What's your opinion or belief with regards to demons? And I suppose a, a footnote of that question would be, what's your thoughts on possession? So I guess, do you believe in demons? And if you do, do you believe that sometimes they take over human form? And and that's a good question. Um, Yes, I do believe in demons. Um, I do believe that, you know, I think the majority of spirits that we encounter were once human and um, that these spirits, you know, are the deceased person just in a different place, whether it be heaven or hell, depending on your beliefs. But I am a Christian, and so I do believe in demons. I don't believe that we encounter them as often as what paranormal entertainment shows on television want us to believe. I think that sometimes a more aggressive or assertive activity from some of these entities, whether it be throwing something off the wall, scratching, pushing, that sort of thing. I think sometimes that's just more of an aggressive behavior from a spirit. You know, we don't know how they can actually communicate. And so we're constantly learning new things. And so sometimes I think that that type activity is labeled as negative or demonic when it may just be a more aggressive spirit trying to get your attention. As far as the possession side of things, I also believe that that can happen. It is a longer process than, again, what some of the paranormal entertainment shows like for us to think. From the studies I've had, demons kind of tend to play the long game. And so there is a step-by-step process that kind of falls into the possession. It's typically not something that just happens. It's something that happens over a period of time. Yeah, it's it's a strange one. I was reading a book, I say recently, probably a couple of months ago now, and it it was the origin story behind The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. So not not the Exorcist novel, but the actual origin true story behind that. Mm-hmm. It's it's just called Possession, I believe. I forget who wrote it. 
But like you say, with playing the long game, this demon, it was a child. I think it was actually a male kid, must have been eight or nine years old. And, it, you know, one time it had just moved some things in the room. And then after a few weeks, it would, you know, control him so that he couldn't move for example and it really was a gradual thing it's quite interesting it's not like you know in the movies you'll walk around the corner and a, a demon will just enter your mouth and you'll you'll turn into <laughs> a devil speaking you know entity. exactly <laughs> it's something because usually you know there's oppression that takes place and you know an infestation there's there's a lot of different things that kind of takes place in the process because the demons, if by traditional belief, you know, and, and traditional Christian beliefs, you know, they're they're there to get your soul. And so typically that's something that, you know, when you start looking at cases and stuff, that's not to say that we don't encounter those type of darker entities at some of these locations, but they're there. They're try to they're trying to find something to latch on to. And a lot of the time there's a lot of different characteristics and stuff that kind of lead them to that that they can latch on to and and then just through the process of things the possession happens um and some of those stories they're 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 really wild and they're they're pretty scary um and that case that i worked on the sunset hill case and we cover that in season one and season two that particular house had five entities in it and one of them i do believe was dark and the the actually the reason I reached out to the demonologist was because the homeowner was going to she essentially opened up the house because it was an abandoned house and let me go in and run um, investigations and experiments anytime I wanted over a year long period. And during that period, you know, we found some we had some pretty disturbing and crazy things happen that we documented throughout the series. And so at the end of that year long period. She comes to me and she's like, okay, because I was continually showing her all the stuff that we were capturing. And she told me, she said, you know, I'm looking to actually fix the house up. I've got some family that's moving in, want to fix the house up and let them live in it. No one lived in this house for 12 years. And so she's like, can you, can you clear the house? And I'm like, you know, that's, that's not something I do. I'm not comfortable with that. I mean, I'm essentially here for historical research and then it's Mm -hmm. kind of evolved. And so I had met a demonologist at a conference that I was speaking at. And so I reached out to him. He reviewed my case and was very interested. So he ended up performing a home exorcism. It was not a a personal exorcism, but um, the spirits that were in this house, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. And so the fact that he let me document this and show it in my season, it was a very eye-opening and interesting experience for me personally because I really didn't know what to expect, and it was a 10-hour-long process. And so just some of the things that we captured while he was doing this home exorcism was was pretty pretty amazing to me. Quite a unique experience. Very much. Bucket list for some crazy people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like I said, it's that's that's not typical for what I like to do. I just feel fortunate that we were able to document that and share that story and really show that that sort of thing is out there. But again, for me, it's more about, you know, sharing the history and going and seeing if there's any type of activity that we can document based on that history in that specific location. 
Oh, definitely interesting to cover. What's next for me then? What have you got next? Okay, so the next story, it comes from out of New Orleans. They're in Louisiana. And so just a little bit of history there as far as um, New Orleans goes. It uh, was a French settlement, and it's there in the Gulf of Mexico. It is in the Deep South. And because of the traditional West African religions in that area, as well as the Roman Catholic and some of um, Haitian voodoo, New Orleans voodoo and Creole voodoo is something that is very, very prevalent in that area. And so New Orleans itself, uh, inside there, you know, there, there are a ton of plantations in the area and just a really deep history that has a lot of stories of hauntings. I mean, there are a ton of hauntings just in New Orleans itself. But the specific story that I'm going to talk about comes from the North Rampart Street Murder House. And so I actually had the opportunity to go and take a tour of this location when I was in New Orleans back in 2019. And so New Orleans is somewhere that's also often hit by hurricanes and really bad weather. It it is below sea level, so it's very, very low. And when Hurricane Katrina hit back in, let me see, it was in 2005, August of 2005, when Hurricane Katrina hit in that area, it essentially devastated the town of New Orleans. And so during that time, uh, in August of 2005, when Hurricane Katrina hit, Two individuals that were bartenders, Zach Bowen and Addie Hall, met each other through bartending. And so Zach, he was a tall, really good looking guy. He was a former military guy, military policeman, actually, there during uh, the Iraqi war. He ended up actually suffering from PTSD due to a lot of the different things that he had experienced while he was in Iraq. And so... Addie herself, you know, she was a small, petite girl, and she did. She was known to actually have some issues. She was she was molested as a child, so she had some different issues once she became an adult. And both her and Zach, because they had PTSD and some of these behavioral issues, they ended up drinking heavily and getting involved with cocaine. And so Zach and Addie got together during the hurricane. And a lot of people had actually evacuated New Orleans at that time. Well, Zach and Addie, they stayed in New Orleans. And so they were often known to, you know, serve drinks and and have things sitting out there for some of the other people who had stayed in New Orleans during that time. They were together for about a year. And during that time that they were together, it was always rumored that they had a very rocky and troubling relationship. They ended up getting a small apartment there on North Rampart Street. And what's interesting about this apartment is that on the bottom level of it, it was actually a voodoo temple. It was a voodoo temple that was was known in that area. It was known as the Voodoo Spiritual Temple on North Rampart Street. And they would often have, you know, their their services and such in the area below. So there's rumors did this particular incident happen because of some of the residual energy and stuff that was going on in this voodoo temple below, or did it have to do with actually Zach and Addie? So on October 5th, 
2006, which Zach and Addie had been together for about a year. Zach ended up murdering his girlfriend and then dismembered her and cooked her body parts in the apartment oven. During that point in time, it was, I mean, it was an extremely brutal murder. Um, It said that, you know, like I said, they would often argue. And apparently Addie was rumored to actually be quite abusive to Zach. And so she would be mentally and physically abusive to him. And she, you know, if you look up pictures of her, she's a very, very small girl. And so over time, over that year-long period, apparently, you know, he just, he snapped with his PTSD. And so it says that during that time that he ended up first strangling her. A day before the murder, Zach had actually gone and he was trying to get his name off of the lease. And so they they had actually broken up. The landlord wouldn't take the name off the lease. And so they ended up getting into a fight. And around 1 a.m. on October 5th, he strangled her. And then over the course of 10 days, he ended up cutting her body up. So he cut her up and they said that they ended up finding her head in a pot on the stove, arms and legs in the oven, and then the torso in the fridge. And what's interesting about this location, when I took the tour of it, they still had the actual stove and fridge in the apartment. No way. Yeah, which is which is pretty disturbing. So he had chopped her up, chopped her up in the bathtub and cooked her on the stove. They said, you know, they're not really sure, but they, they, it didn't look like, you know, there was any type of cannibalism or anything like that. But they believed that he had cooked her to essentially get the skin off the bones and make the body unrecognizable. But right. during that 10-day period that he had cut her up and he had cooked her on the 11th day, the police ends up getting a call from the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel. They said, you know, there was a man's body that was on the roof of the parking garage. And so when they went to recover the body, they found that that was Zach's body. So after he had dismembered and cooked her, he went to the Omni Royal Hotel, jumped off the hotel, landed on the roof of the parking garage, and had committed suicide. They said that in his back pocket... There was a note, and uh, on the note it said, you know, this is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one that I took. And said, you know, he directed where to send the patrol car to, which was 826 North Rampart Street. And he listed out all the details, said, you know, you'll find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend in the oven, on the stove, and in the fridge, along with all the documentation on both of us and uh, a fully signed confession. So when they went to the house, they found all of that with a lot more. um, Now, they've since painted over the stuff in the upstairs uh, apartment. But on the walls, there was all this graffiti um, messages talking about being a failure, talking about contact my ex-wife and tell her I love her. There was also stuff talking about directing them to the fridge and to the kitchen. Now, this is a very, very small apartment. When when you walk up the steps and walk inside, you can just feel the energy. You can feel the heaviness. And you can really see because essentially you walk up the stairs, you're in the living room, 
there's a kitchen off to the side there and a bathroom and then a bedroom. And so it's very, very small. So for me personally, I can understand how if you're in a very volatile relationship, how things could turn bad really quick in such a small, closed, cramped environment, especially when everything is closed down from from Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, there's no escape there, is there, in a little one better? Yeah, and it was, you know, again, they painted over all of that, but it was, it was really quite a, um, I don't even know, I don't even have the words to talk about how I felt when I walked into that room. I mean, you could literally feel the energy, and Bloody Mary's Ghost Tours has taken over the building. They did purchase that. And she is a um, voodoo priestess. And so she's actually tried to keep it. She's kept the apartment upstairs just like it was, minus, you know, repainting and everything. Because they did have people for the 11 years from when this happened back in 2006 to when she purchased it. Uh, They did have people who lived there on and off. So after they had moved out, she just restored the apartment and then she she actually flipped. She's got her store there under the apartment and has sort of like a voodoo temple off on the other side of the building. So they've switched the store and the voodoo temple. But other than that, I mean it's it's just like it was. And so um there have been a lot of different reports of activity and so unfortunately When I was down there, I was only able to take the tour, and I didn't have a night to where they didn't have an opening, and I didn't have a night available on their openings to uh, be able to investigate. But I hope to get down there to investigate this one, because this is one that I actually first became aware of the story through an investigation discovery episode. And they were covering this story, and they talked about, I mean, it was just brutal, And so when I was going down there, I thought, well, I kind of want to go to the area. So I actually had no idea when I was going to the area and actually found out that you could could go in and take a tour of it. And it's right across the street from Congo Square, which is where Marie Laveau, who, you know, was very, very well known in uh, the voodoo community. That's where she used to, on Sundays, meet and uh, they would do their dances and do their different rituals there in Congo Square. So it's it's right across the street from that. Yeah, Marie Laveau was in or portrayed by someone in American Horror Story, I believe. Yes. In one of the yes. seasons. Yeah. Can't recall much about it, but it's something to do with voodoo. If you manage to get a slot for that apartment, mm-hmm. do you find that smaller areas are easier Easy is probably the wrong word, but more efficient and productive to get through in a shorter space of time rather than because, for example, on the one I saw, you were upstairs trying to do the upstairs bit and set up and do your investigation, but the downstairs was beeping, so you had to keep going up and down and up and down. Is it a bit more productive when it's a smaller area? I prefer the smaller areas myself. Being a solo investigator, I'm able to cover more ground that way. And and you're right, you know, in but even though you know, when you watched the one that I did there at Ma Barker's, it was a relatively small house as well. But having the two levels, I do find, and that's why I like to use a lot of the tools that are more alarm style type tools. So that when I'm investigating one area, I can see if something is, that I'm doing is triggering something in another area. 
So that's why I put cameras all over and use the more alarm type sounding tools like the REM pod. And I like that, but I do really, truly prefer the smaller areas because I find I can, you know, I don't have to get up and leave and I don't have to worry about spacing out cameras and all that so much. You can just really condense and conduct everything in, in that smaller area. You can really definitely cover more ground in a shorter period of time. Did you ever see that film called Host? No, huh? Came out in 2020. It was the entire film was filmed over Zoom during the lockdown pandemic, and it was about this. They conducted a séance over Zoom. Oh. At five, six people's houses. I think one of them was the medium, and then there were six friends that joined. It's a really good film. Just mentioning with it being in an apartment that was small, a lot of the activity in that film was in people's respective apartments. That's the only reason I mention it. But really scary film for someone like me that's a complete wuss with uh, <laughs> with paranormal stuff. <laughs> well, I think it. I think it gives you the opportunity to be more creative as well when it's a smaller space like that with the jail that Christy and I run, it's three levels. Now, it's relatively small in comparison to a big penitentiary or a big insane asylum. Or, you know, in in one of my episodes, I investigate a, you know, 100-room hotel. Those are fun. But to me, those are a lot more challenging because, you know, and, and they've got their pluses and minuses either way. You know, with the jail, you've got a ton of stories you can lean on with all the people that have cycled through there over their hundred years. This particular location, you know, you've got that one story of Zach and Addie. Now, you might get more information. You might find things out from the voodoo temple below. You might find out something that's related to the land or something else that happened there. But you're really able to drill down and really focus on one thing because you're in that smaller area and have that essentially that smaller story that you're focusing on is your goal to because i think a lot of these paranormal type shows they're trying to go at it from a bit of an entertainment point of view and they want to try and convince everyone that the paranormal exists for yourself is it more about just telling the story and the history of the location and trying to find out as much as you can from your investigations For me, it is. Uh, I often tell people, you know, I don't go in and and really try to convince anybody of what's happening. For me, it's more sharing that story. I'm going to take, I'm going to document my experiences, share those experiences, share my adventure of doing this, and then really just put it out there and let other people decide based on what I get. Sometimes people may hear something and they may be able to explain it. Sometimes that's a little harder because it's more of a personal experience and they're not there. But for me, I'm not really trying to, I mean, you do have to, if you are a content creator, you do have to, you know, let's be real. You do have to make it at least entertaining enough that it's going to capture people's attention. But I personally feel like, okay, you know, we've got this great story. Hopefully that that's going to captivate you. And really, a lot of the people who watch my show are not actually paranormal enthusiasts. They love history or they're bikers. And so some of them have kind of turned more to the paranormal after that because they've enjoyed the story and the history part of it. And then really, we'll put you in the moment. So I guess maybe the entertainment is more of the suspense of being there in the moment with me and not really knowing what's going to happen. 
Um, and, and I find that actually works out really well because I'll do a lot of lives too. And so people really enjoy that because n- neither of us really know what's going to happen. Yeah. I think it's really clever from a marketing perspective to cover. Basically, you've covered three different niches there. You've got the biker, the paranormal, and the historical. And you'll get crossover between the three. But realistically, you've got three separate core audiences there. So you're almost yes. tripling who your, your exposure, which is which is good. There's a lot of people online that do true crime whilst putting the makeup on. Mm-hmm. And that's, that yes. seems to be quite popular. <laughs> and again it's just it's just getting uh two different audiences involved which is always a clever thing to do yeah and who would have thought you know it's it's amazing to me and that's what we always say about the jail is if you're into true crime we definitely have it if you like the paranormal we definitely have that too and if you're into history we've got that and we really try to keep them separate we don't overflow the paranormal and that's how I do on my episode as well I want it to be suspenseful and I want it to be entertaining but I don't want to make the paranormal the dominating element and so I find that by doing that having a little bit of each you have more people that are able to cross over and and really enjoy what I'm doing with that and like I said it's the same way there at the jail most people will come in and they'll say well is it haunted and we don't talk a whole lot about that there inside the jail until they come and they ask us. And then we're like, okay, these are the things that we have for the people who are interested in the paranormal. And so we've got a lot of people who like the paranormal now that didn't before that was really just into it for the history. What do you class yourself as then? Because I know Christy classes herself as a paranormal investigator. Would you class yourself as more of a historian or a reporter? How would you class yourself? Um, I've always, I've always classed it as, you know, a paranormal investigator, but a lot of the time I like to call it a paranormal historian. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Cause essentially sharing the history and then trying to see if any of the paranormal that I'm able to capture can come in and corroborate that history. So there's a little bit of, you know, adventure with it with the travel, but that's what I often like to say as paranormal historian, because there is a difference in a ghost hunter. Most of the time a ghost hunter is just going to a location, really looking for a thrill and looking for something fun to do. They may not go in and really investigate a lot of the claims, investigate what they've captured and looking into the history. And then the paranormal investigator obviously is someone that that goes in and, and does all of that. And so I, I really classify myself really the same as Christy, but I often call it a paranormal historian. Yeah, that's cool. That's what I'll market the episode as then. I had a a secret uh, nice. <laughs> a little bit of a, an underlying reason why I asked that question. Nice. And, you know, my final one, um, this is one that that I did investigate, and it is one that is covered in season three. It is uh, season three. It was actually the season finale of season three. And it's a shorter story. It's a house known as Willow's Weep, and it is in Cayuga, Indiana. Indiana is classified as is one of the central middle America states. And I'll tell you, just in 
kind of full disclosure, out of all the locations that I've investigated, the places that I've investigated in Indiana have the weirdest and strangest hauntings. And I've investigated three different ones in the state of Indiana. And so this house itself, it was built in 1890, and it's located near the Vermilion River. There is rumors of uh, there was a lot of Native American activity in the area, which as a paranormal investigator, that's something that can lead to a good haunting. But this house itself, it's essentially your quintessential haunted house. And it's been featured on a lot of different shows. And uh, it really gained the reputation of being the most evil house in America. And they say the location is nothing short of pure evil. Now, my experience was a little bit different than that when I was there, but um, the house itself is very unique in how it's shaped. It is actually a cross-shaped house. So if you look at it from a drone view or an aerial view, it's in the shape of a cross, and it sits on a crossroads right there. The the road literally crosses right in front of this cross-shaped house, and it's the cross of Elm Tree Road and Water Street. And so when the house was originally built, apparently it was all farmland in that area. And it was originally a farm back in 1890. Now, there are a ton of stories circling this house. And some of them, I've read several books on it. I actually waited to read the books after I did the investigation. Because when I go in, I like to research the history. If it has kind of an outlandish or strange history... I want to know this, but I don't really want to know what other paranormal investigators have captured here, if that makes sense. Yeah. Just because I don't want to be jaded with my experiences. So I'll go in and read about their experiences after, but I want to know about the pure history. And so a lot of what I found, I did find when I was researching this, that there was a lot of dispute between the current homeowner that was renting the house out for investigations. And one of the former families who owned this. So when you watch my episode, I don't name any of the names of the occurrences here because to be completely honest, I believe that some of the events that happened in this house were true. A couple of the others, I think might have a little bit of embellishment with them because it was just so outlandish of everything that this house had experienced. But The rumors of this one leads from everything from murders, suicides, drug-related deaths, witchcraft, and like I said, just just controversy surrounding all that. The um, homeowner, the reason that it was cross-shaped, they believe the homeowner was very, very superstitious. I don't know very much about the original homeowner, but that's why he built it in this cross-shape, because he was a very superstitious person. The house is called Willow's Weep because it's surrounded by willow trees. And one of the stories surrounding this house is that the willow tree is cursed. And it really surprised me, honestly, because, you know, a house with such a dark and depressing history actually being surrounded by willow trees because here in America, I'm, I'm not sure if it's the same there, but the willow tree actually symbolizes hope, strength, and stability. So I kind of cover that fact on the episode that that was kind of surprising to me. But they had documented, not the owner that owns it now, but the one who had owned it before that, um, they had said that there were 
several people who had had different experiences. One in particular was that, um, you know, they always talked about the trees being cursed. And so as um, this guy was leaving the house, he thought it was, you know, a bunch of bunch of hooies. So he broke a limb off of the tree and he ended up having a car accident on his way home and was was injured severely. So I'm not sure if that's true or not, but they always said, do not um, say anything around the trees. Do not break, hurt, touch, do anything to the trees because they're supposedly cursed. Out of the seven deaths, um, two of those were suicides. One of them was an individual back in the 1950s. He was a young man, and it's believed that he hung himself in the center of the house there, um, in one of the eaves of the doors, he had hung himself. And then the other thing that was actually really interesting was the other suicide. The guy had shot himself. I've heard two reports, one in the head, one in the heart, but I believe he had shot himself in the head. And so the way, again, the way the room is set up, you've got that big center there and then all the rooms that come out from it from that cross shape so it's said that he shot himself in the bathroom stumbled back two steps and fell into this chair and they actually have a chair in there that's they call the suicide chair again i'm not sure if this is legit or not we did do tests on it during the paranormal investigation but it is an old chair with what looks like blood stains on it and that's believed to be the chair that he shot himself, fell into, and it took him two days to find him. Some of the stories go that they also found a child's arm bone under the floor space, the crawl space there. And then also there was a book when they were changing the floor out. There was the subfloor and um, the new floor. When they were taken off the um, upper flooring, they found a conjuring book, a book on conjuring demons in that bottom level. So personally, when I, when I went into this, um, and like I said, there was dispute as on some of the different deaths that had occurred in there, not the suicides, but the other deaths as to whether they actually occurred in that house or happened at the hospital. And so when I went in, I really went in with the mindset of, I want to see what type of activity I can get with the paranormal to validate some of these claims that I'm hearing about. So we went in and there was, I had a lot of activity with the SLS camera and I actually was able to capture when we were asking some questions, an entity sitting in that chair when we started asking questions about being a suicide chair. So we did capture something sitting in that chair. And then also something that was really interesting whether all of this actually happened in that house or not, I'm not sure, but it was a depressing house. And I, I kind of took part of that to be maybe the state that the house was in. I couldn't get anything to talk to me at first. And I was there overnight. Personally, I didn't find it to be the most evil house in America. And I essentially sort of figured that the only real demons in there were the demons that we ourselves bring in, like our own personal demons. I couldn't get any responses. I couldn't get anything to talk to me. So I wanted to try a different technique. I set up my spirit box and let that play while I was inside the room. When I stepped out, 
it started talking. And so we actually have all that documented on the video. And everything that I was capturing, it was very negative and kind of leaned toward pain and suicide and such. And so when we got ready to walk out, something says, get out of the house. I got help, liar, hate, sorry, I done it, give up, shoot, gasps. Those were the type of things that I was capturing on the spirit box continually. And I think I was outside for about 30 minutes. So clearly whatever was in there, it really didn't want to talk to me. And again, didn't talk until until I left the room, but left the recorder going to see if it would capture it. And captured so much that it drained my batteries in a very quick amount of time. So I haven't investigated a whole lot of actual murder houses. That's probably uh, other than the ones that Christy had talked about with Lizzie Borden and, and Ma Barker and that sort of thing. This one here was the one that had the story of the most murders. And, you know, from all indications of what I had captured on the spirit box, a lot of the stories were told I was able to actually match up. Wow. I like how they waited for you to leave the house to start talking. I think that's that's pretty funny. <laughs> to me, that said a lot, actually. You know, and, and it really actually really fit the mood. Because um, I went in, really didn't want to have an impression. But after I had talked to some people, there was a lot of people that was surprised that I actually slept in there. And I was like, you know, I mean, it was a depressing house, but I really didn't feel anything evil. And so I was actually blown away when I was reading some of the different things people had captured there because my experience there was nothing like they had had. But I had um, actually had something throw a bag off of the table and we were able to capture that as well. But other than that, it was a very quiet night for me in there. It's almost like you were the elephant in the room. You were the yeah. odd one out. It was like that film Ghosts with uh, Nicole Kidman. <laughs> Yeah. And that's really how I felt. I mean, I really felt that I was, um, and I don't know if it was, I mean, I try to go into these places without a preconceived notion and really positive. And I think that actually kind of played a role in that because it was, um, I didn't have that same feeling that a lot of people have. And, and honestly, it was, it was depressing, but I didn't feel it to be evil. But then when I went back and listened to the responses that was happening in in the room, because I was honestly expecting to not really hear anything on that, but that spirit box, it talked continually for the 30 minutes that I was out of the room, actually out of the house, period. Wow. To clarify that, that I got the film wrong. It's The Others by Nicole Kidman. Apologies. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> I, called, I called it Ghosts for some reason. When you said that... Um, Someone was sat in the chair on the SLS camera. So is this the camera where it puts a stick figure where it thinks there's a person? Is that what happened with the chair? Yes. And, you know, you do have to watch for false positives, but we were able to capture something sitting in the chair and also captured something laying on the floor. What sort of position was it in? Is that a strange question? <laughs> no, no. The the one sitting in the chair just, just looked like it was just sitting there. It's got like bent legs and in a sitting position. Yeah, it was it was legit in a sitting position. And then the one that was on the floor, it's like it was it, it was almost like it had been thrown over there in the floor. So was it like on its side or something? Or? Yeah, it was it was kind of like it was on its 
kind of on half its stomach and half its side. Wow. Almost like a fetal kind of. Uh-huh. And I hadn't had any hits on that SLS throughout the entire house until I moved into the specific area where the suicide chair was. Now, myself, I have some questions on the suicide chair because I'm curious why someone would save that. But, you know, I don't know. The original intent of the lady who had purchased the house before the guy that does uh, the, the spirit activity out of it now. Um, but the original lady who had purchased it, she supposedly had bought the house for her son to move into. And after she did that, it was, she started finding out all these stories and all these things that had happened in there. Because it really is an odd, a very, very odd house when you see it. A cross-shaped house is just not normal looking, you know? Yeah, it's a bit of a unique design, isn't it? For, yeah. Uh, for a house. I'm just trying to, and it was on a crossroads as well, which is doubly yeah. strange. Yeah. Exactly. And there's, and there's all the rumors, you know, from, I mean, a long time ago, you know, about uh, being on a crossroads and cross-shaped houses and that sort of thing. There's also a lot of rumors, and I wasn't familiar of this until I really kind of started researching the area, but witchcraft is uh, something that is, is fairly common there in um, some of those locations there in Indiana in the earlier years, especially in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah. What's the difference between witchcraft and voodoo? Uh, hmm. Well, voodoo, from what, from what I understand, it's more steeped in uh, Roman Catholic and it has forms of Christianity in it because voodoo does have saints. Witchcraft, and I don't want to say it wrong, but I believe witchcraft is more nature and earth-driven, I believe. But then you've also got, I mean, you've got darker sects of, of voodoo. And then you've got darker parts of um, witchcraft as well, I guess, like the black magic and that sort of thing. I know a lot of people who don't understand voodoo will characterize it as witchcraft and devil worshiping, but that's really more, more of a sensationalism. But from what I understand, it has a lot more of the West African and, and uh, Catholic sex of it is with voodoo. Yeah. There's definitely a culture difference, I think. And you're right. People portray both of them negatively, I would say. And they don't realize that there's, like anything, there's dark aspects of it. There's lighter aspects of it, I yeah. suppose. But then again, the lighter stuff doesn't sell movies and doesn't sell books. That's so true. <laughs> you can tell That's why true. they put those in the media. But no, that was uh, that was really cool, Miranda. I appreciate your time. And I've kept you for, uh, God, nearly an hour and a half now. Really, <laughs> yeah, really I probably got it. kind of long-winded. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. It's interesting to learn about it. What um, is the best place or where is the best place for people to, to find out about what you're doing on your YouTube and stuff? Yes. So to find everything that, you know, all the past four seasons and anything new that's coming out, the best place to find that is under Ghost Biker Explorations on Facebook, as well as Ghost Biker Explorations on YouTube and www.ghostbikerexplorations.com. 
on all of those. You can watch all the past seasons. You can purchase Ghost Biker merchandise. And also, every Thursday night, we're rolling into our second year. I have a live stream where I have different podcasters and investigators, authors, anyone that's essentially doing something in the paranormal that's that's a content creator. It's called uh, Shop Talk Live from the Ghost Biker Garage. And so that's every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern time as well. And that can be seen live on the Ghost Biker YouTube and Facebook channel. Cool. Three quick questions before we finish. I try okay. and ask this to everyone that comes on. So question number one, do you have a motto or a phrase that you live by? Um... I'd like to think I do. Um, <laughs> essentially, you know, it's essentially you never know where that road's going to take you, you know. And if you if you've got a uh, got an idea, like I would have never thought that being able to combine my my hobbies of uh, motorcycling, the paranormal, and history, I never thought that that would lead to such a interesting career as I have doing ghost biker and now being co-owner of a haunted jail. So essentially it's just, if you have that crazy idea, go out and do it because you just, you just never know where, where it might lead or if it might catch on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. Is there anything you wish you would go back and do differently? No, really the only thing that I would do differently is I had a very close relationship with my grandmother. And other than, you know, my librarian and that story about the school, um, my grandma, she always shared a lot of different folklore and stories. And I spent a lot of time sitting on her porch and listening to her um, tell stories. She passed away when I was 23 years old. And I really wish I sat there and I listened, but I really wish I had more of an appreciation for the stories and things that she was telling me when she was doing all that. I really wish I could kind of take all that in a little bit better than I did. Yeah, that's that's quite common, isn't it? Especially when someone's no longer around. Yeah. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. And finally, for anyone who wants to get into the paranormal side of things, whether it's content creation, investigating, research, writing looking into it, just reading books on it. What advice would you give to someone looking to enter that field? Definitely do it and keep an open mind and don't go out and invest in a ton of expensive equipment because all you really need is, um, you know, yourself, a digital recorder, or I mean, an audio recorder and a video recorder to document things and spend that time, really do your research on the history, but definitely go out and do it and just Ask questions and listen is the main thing. Yeah. Good advice. You can learn from people like Miranda, like Christy. Find them over on YouTube. We've got uh, Ghost Biker Explorations and Christy, of course, with Soul Sisters Paranormal. But it's been a pleasure having you on. Really appreciate listening to your stories and the really good way of telling it as well. Really engaging. Well, thank you. No, thank you, Stuart. Welcome. I appreciate you having me on. Not a problem at all. So if anyone wants to get in touch, then you can go on the website then. Hopefully, you'll get a few new viewers on your youtube channel yeah hopefully so and if uh, if anyone's got any cool stories or anything that they want me to check out uh, or even just just listen to reach out to me uh, either through the facebook page you can even do it through youtube or on my website perfect well thanks for coming on and uh, hopefully we'll speak again soon yeah thank you